Have you ever thought you really knew a person only to discover that there's something rather significant you didn't know about him or her? Happened to you before? In the movie The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, there's a scene where the character Wormtongue rises up in order to stab Saruman in the back. Well, right before they filmed that scene, director Peter Jackson, he began to coach Christopher Lee, the actor who played Saruman, on what sort of sound Lee should make while being stabbed in the back. Well, to Jackson's surprise, Lee quickly interrupted him. Lee said, hey, have you any idea what kind of noise a person makes when being stabbed in the back? You can imagine Peter Jackson was kind of quiet and his eyes got a little wide. And the awkward silence was then broken when Lee looked at him and said, because I do. You see, unbeknownst to Jackson, Lee had served in the British, British Secret Service, and he seemed to have an expert knowledge on this sort of thing. In fact, Lee went on to explain that it's a very silent noise when this happens because your breath is being driven out of your body. You know what Jackson then did? He decided not to ask any more questions. <laughs> Good idea, don't you think? <laughs> he was actually surprised that Christopher Lee was even capable of knowing, let alone doing, such a thing. Now, I doubt any of you have taken another person's life by stabbing them in the back. At least, I really hope that's the case. However, my guess is you might know what it feels like because it's happened to you. Not, not with a literal knife, of course, right? but probably with something even more painful, and that's with the words or actions of a close friend. Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal before? Has a close friend or confidant ever hurt you deeply? In a real sense, it does feel like your breath is leaving your body, doesn't it? Such was the experience of King David. This morning, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel 16, verse 15, all the way to chapter 17, verse 23. And in this passage, the author gives special attention to a man named Ahithophel. Now, some of you might remember Ahithophel once was David's closest friend and one of his closest advisors. And I say once was 
Because as our passage makes clear, Ahithophel has betrayed David, God's chosen king. Indeed, as we're about to read, Ahithophel literally wants to take a knife and stab David in the back. You see, as many commentators, I believe, have rightly pointed out, Ahithophel is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Just like Judas, he has chosen to forsake and betray God's chosen king. So here's the question I want us to consider this morning, and that's this. As God's people, how should we think about betrayal? I mean, what should we be thinking? What should we be believing about the person who hurts us in such deep ways? But actually, even, even more important than that, here's the primary question I want us to consider, and that is, in those moments when it feels like the breath is leaving our body, what should we be believing about God? Well, turn with me, if you haven't already, to 2 Samuel 16. That's page 268 in that paperback Bible. And as you're turning there, I'd like to point out just a few literary features of our text. Okay? First, you're going to notice that the passage we're going to study, it's bookended with references to Ahithophel. We see this in chapter 16, verse 20, and then again in chapter 17, verse 23. Second, and this is really important, I want you to be aware of the insights that the author gives us, the reader, that the characters are unaware of. You see, as we work our way through this section, we, the reader, are given special knowledge that those in the text do not have. And this is really important that we understand this, especially if we're trying to understand the tension of this passage. And then finally, what I want you to do is what we've been doing throughout our study of First and Second Samuel, and that is to put yourself in the shoes of the characters. These were real people real people. Try to feel what they feel. Try to experience what they might be experiencing. This will not only help us read this passage with greater interest, but it's also going to help us grasp a very, very important truth concerning the ways of our God. A truth, I want to argue, that is vital for us to understand, especially in the midst of of painful betrayal. So following in your copy of God's Word, beginning there in chapter 16, verse 15, and just to, to catch you up to speed real quick, when we last left David, uh, he was on the run. Absalom had, had risen to power, so David is in exile. He's fleeing Jerusalem, and you'll recall, we actually spent two weeks looking at at David's flight out of Jerusalem, because as we read that text in conjunction 
with Psalm chapter 3, we learn a very important truth. And what we learn from that passage is that God disciplines us so he would be our glory. Do you remember this? God's purpose in disciplining us, allowing his pruning hand to come into our lives, is so that God himself would be our glory, meaning that God would bear the most weight and significance in our lives. And in the previous passage, we see that take place in David. There's a change in his heart. God is the most important thing in his life. Well, now the camera, it cuts away from David. And it focuses in on Absalom and Ahithophel. So look there at verse 15. Let me read this. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Now right off the bat, we, the reader, know something about Hushai that Absalom does not. And what is that? Who is Hushai with? King David, right? And notice carefully the ambiguity of his words. Right? Like I said, based on the previous chapter, we know that Hushai is with David. And everything he just said has a double meaning. I mean, for example, when Hushai proclaimed, long live the king, long live the king, Absalom, being the self-absorbed fellow that he is, undoubtedly understood that to be a declaration of affirmation for him. However, Hushai meant it for David. So Absalom, he, he asks a follow-up question, and notice Hushai's response. He claimed that he would follow whomever the Lord the people and the men of Israel had chosen. And again, we the reader know that Hushai meant David because the text is clear, God had not chosen Absalom, right? Furthermore, as several commentators have pointed out, even verse 19 has an underside to it. On the surface, Hushai promised to serve the son as loyal as he served the father. But how had he served David? With complete devotion and faithfulness. Complete devotion and faithfulness to the one the Lord had chosen. And Hushai intended to serve Absalom in the same way, meaning with loyal devotion to David, God's chosen one. Now, uh, tell me, who else does the text say right at the start there, verse 15, is with Absalom? Another guy that begins with the letter A. Ahithophel, that's right. And you'll recall back in chapter 15, verse 31, 
as David is fleeing out of Jerusalem, David was greatly concerned that Ahithophel had joined the ranks of Absalom. Do you remember this? Indeed, he prayed a prayer. He prayed that God would turn Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness. Do you remember this? Well, in the verses that follow, please hear me, Ahithophel and his counsel take center stage in the narrative. And look at the first thing Ahithophel counsels and instructs Absalom to do. Look at verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father. And the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Yes, you heard that correctly. This counsel that Ahithophel has just given was as diabolical in its affront to God's law as it was efficient in pressing the revolt against David's regime. You see, in that society, concubines were symbolic of the royal house, so that to seize the king's harem was to occupy his royal place. So notice, Ahithophel's counsel was just as much a political act as it was another act. Indeed, it would send the clear message that Absalom was not retreating. That is, he was, by this counsel, if Absalom goes through with it, he's burning every bridge. There's no turning back from here. So what do you think Absalom's going to do? Do you think he's going to follow Ahithophel's advice? Well, look at the very next verse. He does so in spades, verse 22. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Does he take his advice? Yes. And where... Does, uh, does Absalom decide to commit these sinful and shameful acts? Where does the text say? The roof. The exact same roof where David first looked lustfully at Bathsheba. The same place where David gave way to sexual sin Absalom commits grievous sexual sin. You know what the headline is? Absalom, and we've seen this throughout our study, Absalom is the worst version of David. Back in 2 Samuel 7, and we've talked about this before, God made a covenant with David, and in that covenant, God made it clear that all of God's saving promises are going to come through a Davidic son. Do you remember this? This is so important for us to remember because 
as we've been carefully studying the life of Absalom, we've seen that in many ways, Absalom's life mirrors that of his father. However, as the author of Samuel makes abundantly clear, Absalom is the worst version of David, isn't he? So on one level, the text is letting us know that Absalom is not one of the Davidic sons or the Davidic son that's going to fulfill God's covenant promises. I mean, the text goes out of its way to make that point. We need a future Davidic son. But that's not all. There's something else this text emphasizes. Something significant is happening that the author wants us to see. And you know what that is? It's that through Absalom's sinful actions, God is bringing to completion his word of judgment against David for his sin. Do you remember what the prophet Nathan said to David back in 2 Samuel 12? I have it here on the screen. In the wake of David's sin, the prophet Nathan comes to him and says this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. We've seen this in the last couple chapters with Absalom. That's, that's what's taking place. He says, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. That's exactly what Absalom is doing. What David did in secret is openly exposed through the actions of Absalom. Now, take a step back for a second. Can anyone tell me why February 14th of this year was such a sad day for so many men? You know why? Because it was the first day without any NFL football. The entire season and playoffs came to completion on February 13th, 2022. Tell me, when something is brought to completion, should you expect more of it? No. That's why so many guys were so sad on February 14th. Faith with this act of Absalom on the rooftop, something else is being brought to completion. You know what that is? God's word against David due to his sin. In this text, it has been fulfilled. It's now complete. The season is over. As such, and this is important for us to understand, as such, at this point in the narrative, the tide turns. You see, there have been two divine words that have been driving this narrative, right? Uh, we want to take the Bible on its own terms. 
Scripture interprets Scripture. We want the text of Scripture to determine how we properly understand it. And there have been two divine words that have been driving this narrative. God's word of promise in 2 Samuel 7 and God's word of judgment in 2 Samuel 12. Now that God's word of judgment has reached its fulfillment, now that the season is over, his word of promise begins to take over. For notice, that's precisely what happens in the next chapter. Look at the second piece of counsel Ahithophel gives, beginning in verse 23. Let me read this. Now, in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This is why back in chapter 15, David is so wrecked that Ahithophel has joined the ranks of Absalom. Not only because he's losing a good friend, but because he knows Ahithophel is a really wise dude. So now let's hear about this good advice. Verse 17, chapter 1. Chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men, and I will rise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with me will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. Again, consider, these are the words that were once a good friend of David. Consider the betrayal. It says, I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, <clears throat> and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now notice, just like Ahithophel's initial advice to Absalom in verse 21 of 16, Ahithophel's plan, it's careful, it's calculated, and it's concise. Indeed, as several commentators have pointed out, it was a solid military strategy. Yet notice, notice carefully in his advice, in this plan, who is the one calling the shots? Ahithophel. He wants to be the one who kills David. Strikingly, I want you to notice, Ahithophel suggests that Absalom do to David what David had intended to do to Uriah. Isolate and kill. So politically and militarily, it was shrewd advice. And think about it. It would be far better to end the civil war with a single battle than to risk having it drag on and on, because that would only embitter the people towards Absalom. No wonder the plan seemed right to Absalom and the elders. I mean, notice what they say there in verse 4. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. And think about it. When you make decisions, something seems right, let's go ahead and do it. So here comes the civil war, right? 
The battle is about to go down. We're ready to see the 12,000 men be gathered together, and Ahithophel is going to lead the charge. Let's see him do it in the next verse, okay? Look at verse 5. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai, the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And everybody's jaws dropped. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken, meaning he shared the plan. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Okay, now, whoa, 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 whoa. Why in the world would Absalom seek Hushai for his advice? In many ways, this makes no sense whatsoever. Because think about it. Who does Absalom have in Ahithophel? What does the text say at the end of chapter 16? He has a guy who it's like if you consult him, it's like you're consulting the very word of God. Absalom knows this. All the men of Israel know this. He's already followed Ahithophel's advice once before. It, it literally makes no sense why in the world he would stop and not go through with Ahithophel's plan, but instead ask Hushai. And not only that, I mean, notice the advantage that Hushai has here. He's, he's known all the contents of Ahithophel's plan, and he's asked to give his opinion, review, and comment. What's happening here? What's happening here is that the author is giving us a clue that the tides have indeed turned. And that God's promises to David are beginning to take over. Look at what Hushai says in the following verses. Verse 7. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears of it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men whose heart is like the heart of a lion will utterly melt with fear for all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. So you know what he did? He just punched holes in all of Ahithophel's plans. And now notice what he does next. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for the multitude. Can you see it, Absalom? That you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found. 
and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he draws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag him into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found here. Now notice there's some striking contrast between his plan and Ahithophel's plan. First, notice, notice first, which one is longer? Hushai's, right? His, his response, when you look at it closely, is masterfully communicated. Because his not only appeals to logic and caution, but most importantly, you know what his plan appeals to? Pride and vanity. Ahithophel knows how to execute a, sex, a successful result, revolt. But Hushai knows how to stroke thirsty egos. Notice Hushai made Absalom the center of everything in his plan, which fell precisely in line with Absalom's philosophy of life. So notice the response of Absalom and his men in verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Now, if we were to stop right here, we would think, man, Hushai is the man. What a great orator. What a wise counselor. He saved David. But now at the end of verse 14, this is really the most important verse of the entire passage. And it's the key to understanding the whole thing because the author is going to give us, the reader, an insight that no one else in the narrative knows. Notice what the text says. The end of verse 14 for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. Good, not in a moral sense, but good that was effective. So that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. That is, to bring judgment upon Absalom for his sinful actions. Why did the counsel... Of, Abs of, of why did Absalom, rather, choose the counsel of Hushai more than Ahithophel? It's because God ordained it, <laughs> right? In other words, the Lord answered David's prayer back in chapter 15, but the Lord's purpose in doing so was his own to bring upon harm to Absalom. The Lord was acting in judgment now on Absalom. And I just want to just take a step back for a moment and it's important that we understand theologically what's going on here. This is one of the many examples, many examples in the Bible of the sovereignty of God, which is absolute, nothing occurs outside of his control, and human responsibility, which is real. Humans are genuinely accountable for what they do. 
what Absalom had done up until this point, from one point of view, was the Lord's doing. But at the same time, Absalom, and the text makes this clear, was fully responsible and the Lord was going to deal with him accordingly. God's full sovereignty on display and humans are culpable and responsible for their actions. Yet, what this text is really screaming at us, though, is this important truth, and that is the only plan that matters is God's. Notice, this whole chapter is filled with different plans. You have Ahithophel's plans. You have Hushai's plans. But there's only one plan that really matters, and whose is that? God's. His is the plan that will always come to pass without fail. Ahithophel's plan seemed right. Yet notice what the Lord does in these verses. He answered David's prayer not by making Ahithophel's advice foolish, but by making it appear foolish to Absalom through the clever words of Hushai. So notice what, what happens next. Verse 15. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priests, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel. And thus so have I counseled. Now therefore send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimez were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Do you see? We're on pins and needles here, okay? We got the message. We're trying to give it to King David. There's a lot of variables. Is it going to happen, right? But notice what we see there at, the, at verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. Now, you must remember as we're reading this, you and I know a secret. And what's the secret? It's what the author told us in verse 14, namely, that the Lord had decided about Absalom and what ruin he was going to bring on him. The author knows this, and you know this because he told you. But the people in this story don't have that information. They don't know what God had ordained. For example, Hushai does not have it, or Hushai rather. In fact, Hushai didn't even know the decision Absalom made from his own advice. He had been dismissed before they had confirmed and reached their decision. This is why Hushai, notice, could only tell David what he and Ahithophel had both said. And notice, Hushai urges David to act under the assumption that Absalom's going to choose Ahithophel's plan. All this to say, every person in this chapter is in the dark. I want to put it this way. The Lord's sovereign purposes, which we are privy to know in verse 14, that sovereign purpose is hidden from everyone in the text. So these two guys carrying an important message, they're trying to be good, they're trying to sneak by and not be seen, 
But one of Absalom's guys sees them. So what do they do? They flee to Behurim. Now, do you happen to remember what happened the last time David and his men came to Behurim? It's there in chapter 16. They met Shimei. And do you remember what Shimei did? He not only hurled insults, but he also hurled what? Stones. Exactly. That's right. Rocks and dirt. But notice that's not what happens this time. Look again at verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Behurim who had a well in his courtyard and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. And nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came and the woman at the house, they said, where are Himaz and Jonathan? <coughs> Excuse me. And the woman said to them, they have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well, and they went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Again, proof that they don't know what's happening, because they're assuming David's going to follow, or Absalom's going to follow Ahithophel's advice. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Instead of meeting another Shimei, they encounter another Rahab, don't they? Who hid the two spies. So David receives the message. Now notice how this section ends. It was bookends by Ahithophel. Again, the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. Notice, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed... He saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Amen. This is God's word. How many of you know who this is. Know who it is? Yeah. This is Peter Falk, the actor who spent most of his career playing the eccentric, rumpled, but always triumphant detective who? Columbo. Columbo. Do you know that in real life, when he was alive, he's, he's since passed, do you know that in real life, Peter had a glass eye? This came from an operation to remove a cancerous tumor when he was three years old. Yet in spite of missing an eye, he was a high school athlete and he especially excelled in baseball. Well, during one game, Peter hit a line drive into the alley in one of the fields, in the outfield. He was sure to get to second, but he tried to stretch it into a triple. Well, as he slid into third base, the throw was high and the tag was late. But the umpire said, you're out. Peter couldn't believe it. 
The fans couldn't believe it. It was clear the, the throw was high, the tag was late. How could the umpire not see that he was safe? Enraged, you, you know what Peter did before he went back to the dugout? He removed his glass eye, handed it to the umpire, and said, here, you'll do better with this. Now, what was Peter's point? Well, there's probably a lot of points. One thing in particular was he was saying, look, this will help you see things more clearly. <laughs> well, faith, in many ways, for us as Christians, that's the purpose of this passage. How this passage is not for us to see a play at third base, but rather for us to see one of the most important ways of our God. For there's an important truth that emerges from this text, and that is this, and that is, though often unseen, God's sovereignty is never absent. Though often unseen, God's sovereignty, His sovereign rule, His work in our world, Him bringing about His plan and His purposes, are never absent. This, I want to argue, is, is the main point that the author stresses in this section. Though often unseen, God's sovereignty is never absent. I mean, we see this clearly in verse 14, do we not? Commenting on how God's sovereign work is often unseen, uh, Dale Ralph Davis writes this. He says, more often than not, more often than not is the manner of God's work. His scepter is unseen. His sovereignty is hidden behind the conversations and decisions and activities and crises of our lives. We see only grocery store lines and diaper changes and school assignments. But through and over and behind it all, Yahweh rules. He is not absent, but neither is he obvious. Though often unseen, God's sovereignty is never absent. But you know what? You know when God's sovereignty seems the most absent? when we experience the pain of betrayal. Indeed, in those moments, God himself seems distant. Yet in those moments, I want to encourage us that we must counsel ourselves with biblical truth. We must remind ourselves in the pain, in the sorrow, that God is not absent, but he is present. And he's working all things together for our good and his glory. And the good he's producing in us is not better circumstances, but he's doing the work in us so that we would be more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because faith, what we see taking place here in verse 14 it is not unique to Ahithophel and David. No, the whole testimony of Scripture 
reveals that God is active, accomplishing his plan and purposes, even if unseen by us. Indeed, when suffering painful betrayal, we must not only speak this truth to our hearts, but as David counsels us in the Psalms and encourages us, we are to bring our pain and hurts to the Lord, to share our griefs and burdens with him. Now, this is a really, really big truth about God. And what I want us to do is, is as a, we close, I just want to direct your attention to three important applications that I believe this text highlights. These are three encouragements about this truth, though often unseen, God's sovereignty is never absent. And the first is this. Since God's sovereignty is never absent, take comfort. Okay? Notice, although Ahithophel's advice was meant to overthrow David in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 16, it nevertheless carries out God's purposes for David. Right? Ahithophel's scheme fulfills the Lord's previous word spoken in chapter 12. And there's an important encouragement here, faith, for this text reminds us that, think about this, the betrayer, Ahithophel, he's still in the hand and under the control of God. That is, even the one seeking to do harm to David, or friend, the one seeking to do harm to you, is under the control of God. Faith, all our enemies, please hear me, they're on a leash. Take comfort in that. Second, since God's sovereignty is never absent, walk in humility. Imagine for a moment if verse 14 of chapter 17 didn't exist we might come to the conclusion that Hushai saved the day. That is, we might falsely credit people like Hushai for his brilliance, when in effect, it was the Lord working behind the scenes. Friend, you might have come up with a helpful piece of advice. You might have said the right thing at the right time, or you might have been at the right place at the right time, and if that's the case, I'm really happy for you but don't take credit for it. Why? Because like in this passage, it was God who ordained it. So walk in humility. Lastly, since God's sovereignty is never absent, honor the true king. Right? Hushai and the messengers in this passage, even that, that servant girl, right? They are men and women who in the midst of all this chaos and turmoil in their world, can we not see any application here, all this chaos and turmoil in their word, they still made it their aim to honor the one true king, King David. For them it was King David, for us today it's David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I've already mentioned, Ahithophel is the Judas Iscariot of the Old Testament. 
Indeed, there are striking parallels between the two. Like Judas, Ahithophel betrayed God's true king. Like Judas, Ahithophel hanged himself when the consequences of what he had done dawned on him. Indeed, just as Ahithophel betrayed David, rather, just as Ahithophel's, just as Ahithophel's betrayal of David was ordained by God, so too Jesus Christ experienced the ultimate betrayal because it too was ordained by God. As Peter makes it very clear in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Yet while King David experienced betrayal because he came under the discipline of God for his own sins, Jesus suffered betrayal not for his sins, but for ours. <clears throat> and this is what makes the message of Jesus such good news, friend. That though we are deserving of condemnation because we have betrayed our God in our sin. God sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to absorb the penalty we are owed for our sin and then three days later rise triumphantly from the grave so that all who put their faith in him would not experience the wrath of God but be welcomed into his kingdom and be loved as a son and daughter of God. Indeed, friend, because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, we are now the recipients of God's promises, his new covenant promises, namely that in Christ, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Amen? Though this world might forsake you, in Christ, God never will, Christian. What a comfort. Though often unseen, God's sovereignty is never absent. Oh, this is an anchor for our souls, is it not? Let's pray.